Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Bingelli. Today, we have the great opportunity to speak with minor league strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Red Sox, Jeff Dolan. Jeff, thanks for coming on. We appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to, to chat a little bit. To start here on this episode, we'll kind of ask you, you know, what led you to your career path of being a strength and conditioning coach? And did you have, you know, some interests of, of getting into this field when you were growing up? That's a great question. And actually, no, usually when I talk to strength coaches and this is nothing bad, it's just typically a strength coach has one of two origin stories, background stories, either they were, you know, played sport X in high school, football, basketball, whatever. They were okay, mediocre, not great. They found a weight room. They found a sports performance facility. They started training. It enhanced their sport performance and gave them the ability to accomplish goal Y. So play on the varsity team, play in college, uh, play at the highest level, whatever. And that experience and that meant so much to them that they have chosen, you know, they want to work in the field and help other kids that are in that situation accomplish their goals as well. I love that story. It's great. You hear it a lot. Story number two that I hear a lot is, you know, my, my dad got me uh, a weight set when I was 12. I lifted my whole life, fell in love with lifting, you know, competed in Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or bodybuilding or whatever. And I love the weight room and I've learned to apply the weight room to a team sports setting. And now I'm a strength conditioning coach. My origin story is neither of those. Uh, I actually didn't find a weight room until I was about 23, 24 years old. Uh, I grew up actually doing endurance sports. So I ran cross country and track in high school. I briefly ran track in college. D3, I was not very good. Uh, it actually wasn't the right sport for me. I competed in triathlon after that and bike racing at a reasonably high level, like a uh, elite amateur level, they call it. And so I was always interested in the training process. Um, that's actually been an obsession of mine, writing training programs, you know, how do I organize training in a way to help me achieve my goals? It just, you know, for most of the first part of my life there, it was applied to an endurance sport setting. And I kind of took the triathlon thing as far as I could. I lived in Colorado for a little while doing that. And I didn't, you know, really quite reach the level that I was hoping to, but throughout that process, uh, it inspired me to, to get into training for other things as well. And once I had taken the endurance sport thing, as far as I could, I just happened upon a weight room, met a group of guys that was very welcoming, said, Hey, we're going to teach you how to lift, come lift with us. Very open group. And, uh, one thing led to another, uh, got just as obsessed with, the weight room as I had been with uh, swimming, biking, and running, and eventually found my way into team sport, strength and conditioning. Now, however many years later, here I am, worked mostly with baseball in my career. As you said, I'm currently with the Boston Red Sox going on my second year. Last year, I worked at the AA level in Portland, Maine, 
this upcoming year. I can announce this officially now because I've signed. Um, I'm actually going to be the rehab strength and conditioning coordinator. So long-term rehab guys that are at our spring training complex, I will work along with the physical therapist and medical team to uh, build out their training process while they're going through their injury rehabilitation. I've also worked with the New York Yankees for a couple of years. I worked in college baseball at the University of Illinois, also with uh, the women's soccer team there, and took a quick detour into basketball with the Phoenix Suns in 2019. And then something called COVID-19 happened, and they didn't uh, have a spot for me anymore there. So especially for people that might not know kind of the education process, did you have an extensive education to, to get to where you're at? Or was this just kind of you learned on the fly type of a process? How did that entire thing go? Uh, so yes, I actually, you know, the first time I went through college when I was doing my triathlon stuff, I actually studied history. So I have a, a history degree from the University of Rochester, uh, minor in religion and classics. And I uh, do basically nothing with it except for, you know, still read some history stuff, think about the, the world and current events in those types of lenses. But I actually went back uh, for a second bachelor's degree to formally study exercise physiology in order to get into strength and conditioning. There's also an extensive internship process. I did a number of internships both before and during my master's degree, which I got right down the road here at University of South Florida. So yeah, it's a pretty long process of formal education and then, you know, on the job training, uh, apprenticeship type of thing. The learning in this field never ends. I make sure that I get better every single day because if I'm not getting better every single day, then that's doing a disservice to my athletes who need to get better every day. When you introduced yourself about the various sports and the various levels that you've worked at, you mentioned that you were briefly with the Phoenix Suns and then COVID-19 really started and then they didn't have a place for you. How did the Boston Red Sox get a hold of you and, and get really your name and was willing to bring you on? So uh, a lot of how things go in this field is, is you work connections to get uh, hired into a new spot. Unfortunately, when I lost my job with the Suns, that was also during a period of time where not a lot of other people were hiring because most people were, you know, most organizations were letting people go just like the, the Suns had to. Um, so, you know, I spent a number of months applying to any job that seemed, seemed like it might be a good fit. I had a number of interviews, had some offers here and there, but, you know, I got in touch with the Sox and I spoke with Chris Messina, who's our big league assistant strength coach who I knew a little bit, but he suggested, yeah, go ahead and apply and go through the, go through the process. You know, I think from the first meeting I had, first interview I had with our, our director of performance, Mike Bruce, and our big league head strength coach, Kiyoshi Mimose, it felt like an organization that was headed in the right direction and that would both value my, my skill set, but also push me and, and include me in, in the quest to get better as a whole, to better serve our guys. You know, at the minor league level, it's all about player development. How can we put those guys in, in the best position to become the best possible ball players that they can so they can arrive at Fenway ready to go and to contribute to a team that's ready to win a World Series or at least contend to win a World Series year after year? The Red Sox made it all the way to the ALCS, losing the Houston Astros. So a very good season from them. You know, you mentioned minor leagues focus a lot on development, development of players. We'll go into the development part for you. You know, when you work with these players on an everyday level, what are 
some things that you try to implement to them? And then what are some techniques and skills that you try to you know, instill and, and, and provide and educate uh, on a daily basis? Basically, my job is to help guys build or, or retain physical qualities that help to maximize their performance. So what physical qualities does a guy need to go out there and perform well? And that can be different for every guy. Some guys might need to be able to produce more force. Some guys might need to be able to produce that force more quickly. So increased power. Some guys have some joint mobility issues and they need to move a little bit better. Um, some guys, we need to just take, you know, more of an injury reduction focused approach. So really it depends on the guy. And it also depends on the level a little bit too. So I've worked at three different levels uh, in the minor leagues. Actually, I don't know how, how many of your listeners are actually 100% familiar with how the minor league baseball system works. But, you know, when you turn on ESPN and you're watching the Yankees play the Red Sox, that's the very, very tip of the iceberg in terms of what professional baseball is. So there are actually one, two, three, four, five or six levels that guys would need to progress through in order to get to Fenway Park to be playing against the Yankees on ESPN. And I've worked at the lowest level, the second lowest level, and now double A is, is just below the highest level of the minor leagues. How I approach the education process and the training process for a younger guy is actually probably going to be different from how I might approach some of the guys at double A. There's going to be more similarities than differences. There's always a, there's always an educational component. Ultimately, my job is to help guys develop their routines to get them feeling as good as they can so that they can go out and perform, you know, once, once it's time for first pitch. The interesting thing about the minor leagues is that if I do my job well, I don't have a guy for very long. Hopefully he's playing really well and he goes up to the next level and he's not going to take me with him. So you mentioned education. First and foremost, my job is to teach guys as well as I can and assist them as well as I can so that ultimately they don't need me when they go to the next level and they can keep these routines as they go up to the big leagues. What are some of these routines that you try to provide throughout all levels of the major leagues? The good thing about baseball is that basically once you've worked at one level, it's pretty much the same. Um, baseball is a strange, strange beast in that there's a game every single day. And that game is typically going to be at the same time. Obviously, in the big leagues, you have to deal with time zones and that type of thing. You don't really have to deal with those in the minor leagues, but still most, most games, you're going to have a game. It's uh, most days you're going to have a game at seven, seven Oh five, something like that. You know, if you, if you speak with guys who have had long sustained big league careers, oftentimes they'll tell you like, yeah, the routines that I laid down when I was in rookie ball, I do the same thing. Guys like Derek Jeter talk all the time about, Hey, like if you give me a time of day, on a game day, I'll tell you exactly where I am. So I don't remember his routine specifically, but thinking of a couple of my guys, I know they're going to come in um, about six hours before first pitch. They're going to maybe get in the hot tub, cold tub. They're going to do a little work with the athletic trainer. Then they're going to come to the weight room. They're going to see me. We got a little pre-stretch routine that we're going to do. You know, one guy that I'm thinking of, for example, had a, a shoulder surgery you know, the, the season prior to working with me. So we had a couple of exercises that we did to, to maintain the health of that joint, come and do that. Then he's going to go out and do team stretch with the rest of the guys, going to play catch, going to run. Then we've got yeah, team defense and batting practice as a squad. And then he's going to get some food. 
the beauty and the curse of baseball is that every day really is, is the same. That's why I keep stressing the importance of routine. I keep using the word routine. Um, but really that's kind of the coping mechanism for a lot of us, you know, to deal with a game that's filled with uncertainty, you know, routines are, are one way that we, that we deal with that. When you work with an athlete that is maybe coming off an injury or, you know, has had maybe an injury in the past and they're looking to prevent it from happening again, whether this, you know, it can be in various muscles, various different body parts. Like how do you kind of work with that, improve his performance while also making sure that, you know, his body is in good shape and continues to progress or, you know, so an injury doesn't happen again? Sure. Well, uh, you're not going to find any professional athlete who hasn't been banged up. The unfortunate reality is that sport at the highest level is not, is not healthy. You know, exercise is healthy. Physical activity is healthy. Putting your body through the meat grinder every single day for years on end can go a little bit past where, you know, the normal healthy would, uh, would fall on the continuum there. So in terms of dealing with guys who are banged up, which is pretty much all of them, this goes for, for every sport too. 100% of basketball players knees hurt. 100% of baseball pitchers, shoulders hurt. Um, that doesn't mean that they're, they're injured per se, but what I'm getting at is, is putting your body through what pro athletes put them through is not really normal. So when you're dealing with high level athletes as a strength and conditioning coach, you have to be cognizant of how do we avoid at all costs doing harm to this guy? How do we avoid exacerbating any issues that he may be experiencing, but how do we utilize exercise as a modality to make him feel better and increase his robustness and his resilience and his ability to both perform at a high level and also ward off some of those possible injuries that he may, uh, may experience. So the, the first part of that is getting to know the athlete, getting to know their, their injury history, getting them to trust you so that they are willing and able to disclose, Hey, this doesn't quite feel right. I feel a little tight here. Um, so communication with the athlete and understanding of what they got going on as well as an understanding of, of the game and what they're going through and what they're experiencing and also communication with the medical staff. The first person I talk to every day when I arrive at the park and the last person I talk to every day before I leave is the athletic trainer. Who's the, you know, the main medical point man at the affiliate there beginning of the day, end of the day, and all throughout the day, I'm in communication with him about things that I see, things that he sees, guys that we have either an open injury case for, or a guy that's just a little bit banged up, or if it's something that maybe someone told me and didn't tell him or vice versa. Like I mentioned before, having a sound training model that respects uh, the current state of the athlete and also where we want to get him to. You've mentioned many times you've worked with athletes from different sports, from different levels, you know, the Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees, you were also part of their minor league staff, the Phoenix Suns, and then, you know, University of Illinois, you dealt with the baseball and soccer team, a uh, women's soccer team. Explain to us maybe what you've noticed as really significant differences between the sports and then also the differences you've noticed between the levels of plan, because you've dealt with professional athletes and you've also have dealt with college athletes. From a, a basic level, the training in the weight room is more similar than different from sport to sport, but the areas in which they differ, they can differ quite a bit. 
zooming out to a 30,000 foot view, the most important thing you can do when you work with a new sport or a sport that you're maybe not familiar with is you just shut your mouth and you observe and you listen. Every sport has their own culture. Every sport has their own language. Every, every sport has their own structure, uh, their own schedule. You know, when I moved to the NBA, for example, I had only worked with basketball as an intern. I had never been full-time with a basketball team before. So I spent a few months just getting to know the lingo, um, getting to know what things are called, getting to understand how the schedule works. Same thing I had to do with soccer. Once you learn the culture and you can immerse yourself into it, you know, then that helps you connect with the players more because you really begin to be able to speak the same language as them, be able to understand what it is they go through on a daily basis because you're experiencing it as well. Ultimately, they want to know that you understand what, what they're experiencing. You're going through it with them and you're there to support them through that. You know, I think both of those times that I've kind of exited my comfort zone a little bit, which is baseball. Um, I think that I've, I've really grown professionally uh, as well as personally as well, you know, to put myself in an uncomfortable environment that I don't know how things work as well had to figure it out. So you work with professional hitters every day. Uh, what parts of the body does a hitter need to utilize to get them the most to increase their power? When you look at hitting and throwing as motor skills, the, the physical traits that separate elites from sub-elites are basically lower body strength is part of it. Lower body power is part of it core strength is part of it. Upper body strength and power is part of it. But really what ties it all together is the ability to create a coordinated sequential summation of force and to transfer energy from the ground through the segments of the body to then out into the bat or into the ball to be projected. It's not only strength in a, in a, you know, a weight room sense, but it's also the ability to utilize that strength within a coordinated motor pattern for someone who works at the level that I've worked at, you know, that's where the money is made. Once you reach a certain point, getting a guy's squat, for example, to increase is probably actually not going to transfer to his ability to hit or throw anymore. So how do I find methodologies that actually will assist with the skill that we need to improve? Yeah, definitely. How do you as a strength and conditioning coach go about implementing that into a training plan? So like I mentioned before, I make sure to individualize my programs as much as possible. So what physical gifts does somebody have? What is his strengths? Uh, what allows him to be special? Because he's not going to get to you know, the level I'm coaching at unless he's pretty special. The interesting thing about baseball is there's no one archetypical body type you see baseball players of all different shapes and sizes, Aaron judge versus Jose Altuve or something like that. Both play the same sport, both very successful. One's six, eight, one's five, whatever. So we can also implement uh, physical assessments, sprint testing, jump testing, uh, that sort of thing to tell us a little bit about, like I said, what someone's strengths are and what someone's weaknesses are. And then, you know, at certain points in the year, we're going to try to maintain the strengths while increasing uh, the ability, bringing up the, the weaknesses to a higher level. So it's no longer as much of a weakness, or sometimes we may just focus on the strength and say, Hey, you know, we're going to give you a little bit of what you 
what you're good at and just go grip and rip, go, go barrel some baseballs or go, go throw some, uh, throw some heaters. So as a strength and conditioning coach, who is the strongest player you train? And uh, and then also who is the fastest player you've trained in any sport? Yes, we can, we can go that route. No. So I, you know, I have worked with college football, uh, as an intern. I don't recall this guy's name, which is a little bit embarrassing, but when I did work with this team, the guy who uh, played fullback, uh, I, he was from Alaska. I don't remember his name. I remember where he was from. And I remember overhearing a conversation or one of the defensive backs was talking to another defensive back. And he was, he was talking about a time that they were scrimmaging and uh, he got hit by this fullback. And he basically said, all I remember is flying through the air and, and wondering how someone could be that strong. So that's, that's probably the strongest guy I've worked with. Fastest guy I've worked with is a guy who plays, uh, I think he has big league time now for the Yankees. Uh, his name is Esteban Florial, plays center field. Um, he's been up a little bit. He's probably at AAA most of the time. Uh, he's, he might be the fastest that I've worked with. So you've worked football, basketball, and baseball. My question is, with like the three sports, is there like a difference between like the fastest guy in football versus basketball and baseball? Is it like, does it vary from like different sports? So would the fastest football player beat the fastest basketball and baseball player? That's, that's a good question. And that's getting into an interesting discussion that we can have. So there are two types of speed. There's, you know, there's outright speed, how fast you are in, you know, whatever type of race, 40 yard dash, that type of thing. Uh, but then there's also game speed. So how do you utilize that speed within the context of a game? The best example I've seen of this is Usain Bolt. He's played some soccer. I have no idea who he played for. I think it was like a semi-pro team. So that's, that's a great example because that's the fastest man to ever live, 958 and 100 meters. Um, but you put him on a soccer field and he's not the fastest guy on a soccer field. So why is that? It's because he doesn't have the perceptual ability. He doesn't understand the game at a high enough level to outpace guys who do have a better understanding and perceptual ability to play the game of soccer. If you put a track sprinter with no football experience, uh, you know, if you'd slap an 80 jersey on him and, and send him out wide and you put a D-back right on him who's jamming him, you know, with pads on him and a helmet, he may not be as fast in that context as someone who's done that their whole life. If you put uh, an NFL skill player, defensive back, wide receiver, et cetera, in starting blocks and line them up against a professional track sprinter, they're probably not going to be as fast in that setting. So being fast within a sport con sporting context, there's a physical component of that, but there's also an understanding of the sport and an applicability of that physical quality to the game. Definitely. Uh, it's sometimes when I watch like basketball and baseball, you can, people always talk about like, man, this guy could be like a really good, like quarterback or receiver. You always hear that argument. It's definitely, it's different from most sports. They require different parts of the body, different movements. It's definitely, uh, it's hard to like judge somebody's speed based on like a certain sport versus another because the requirements are, uh, are different for each each one and it's always kind of like interesting just to like compare different sports and and uh comparing their speed and realizing that uh you know some some guys will be faster in one sport versus the other and it doesn't make them uh any, any much worse of an athlete it just you know 
they got their strengths and they got their weaknesses. Yep. The most, most important determinant of success is being great at your sport. 100%. A question that I was thinking about before I came on, uh, it's all about PEDs. It's an issue in every sport. Uh, we see these scandals, whether it's Bate Mitchell report, Lance Armstrong, Tony Mandridge in the NFL. I think there's like a little bit of a misconception with PEDs. Am I right? Is there a misconception of PEDs that you know about as a strength and conditioning coach versus like the uh, normal person that just watches sports? I mean, I would, I would say that, you know, anytime that any sort of report or any sort of failed drug test comes out, I think it, it's unfortunate for the, the image of the sport. You know, unfortunately, we, we keep experiencing uh, things where running into those situations, whether it's Alex Rodriguez or going back to Barry Bonds, Marion Jones, whatever, Balco, Lance Armstrong, you know, whenever it happens, it's unfortunate. The drug testing is, is there for a reason. You know, we got to have, we got to have rules. We got to play on an even playing field and whether people argue that, that that's right or that's not, I think we all agree that things need to be on equal footing. And once you've established rules, if you break those rules and you get caught, there have to be consequences. Absolutely. EDs, I think most people, the reason why they use them is more as a recovery tool uh, to be able to sustain a, a level of performance for a very long time. An example would be uh, in 98, the home run race where McGuire and Sosa, where they both were using steroids and Ken Griffey Jr. Like McGuire and Sosa, they were able to sustain that performance a little bit longer with the PDs. But with Ken Griffey Jr., he had a very long slump at one point in the season. And because 162 games, you every season, no matter it's a football, basketball, or baseball, you're going to hit a wall. Griffey hit that wall and ended up going with 56 home runs. But a guy like McGuire and Sosa were using PEDs. They were able to continue that, that pace because they were using some, some of the PEDs to be able to enhance the recovery a little bit faster. Yeah, that certainly is an argument for it. Like I mentioned before, the, the difficult part about baseball is not any one game is not a huge, doesn't take a huge physical toll on you, but uh, you know, you stack game after game after game on top of each other and it, it gets tough. But obviously we operate within, within the rules and regulations put forth by MLB and part of my job and part of uh, you know, the medical staff's job is to try to utilize all the methodology that we have available that falls within the rules of what we're able to do and provide those to our athletes so that they can recover as, as effectively as possible uh, via natural methodology. You know, the weight room is part of that. The training room is part of that. Uh, how you fuel yourself is part of that. Nutritional strategies, your uh, legal supplementation strategies, any other sort of recovery enhancement, whether that's hot tub, cold tub, whether that's different modalities that we can utilize in the training room, outside life stress management, you know, actually having a sleep schedule, you know, turning your phone off at a certain point, not playing video games until three in the morning. A lot of the simplest things um, can have profound results. You know, I keep coming back to education, but that's, that's part of our job is to give those guys the tools that they need to, to maximize their ability to recover via natural, natural strategies. Relating to recovery tools uh, like norm attack, cupping, do you think there's like an overemphasis on it? And do you think those things are very valuable? How, how effective are like Norma Tech or cupping when it comes to recovery? 
with with something like Normatech, there's some some validated research behind it. You know, cupping's a little different. Cupping's a little esoteric. You know, and there there there's an Eastern medicine way to explain uh, the physiological effects of cupping, and there's a Western Western medicine way to explain it. Um, but what I will say is, no matter what it is, if an athlete thinks that it helps, then it helps. The placebo effect is something that's very powerful and very real. So uh, also everybody's a little bit individual. If someone eats the same breakfast every day, you know, there's probably no research to say that that helps, but if someone thinks it helps, it probably helps. So again, it's an individual thing. You know, how do I recommend certain recovery methodologies to guys? Well, I got to, I have to sit with them. I have to get to know them. And we have to talk about things that have, that they perceive to be successful uh, or helpful in the past. If they think it helps, it probably helps. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think I do use no, I've used a lot of normal te- techs and uh, cryotherapy uh, before those things help out a lot. But the most important thing is uh, nutrition and uh, getting uh, eight to 10 hours of sleep. Uh, people, I think a lot of af- young athletes today, they just depend too much on the advanced stuff instead of just sticking with the basic stuff. And uh, it definitely shows sometimes when uh, you're you stay up till 3 a.m. on your phone or playing uh, Xbox all, all night, and then you go out the next day and you just like lay an egg. Definitely uh, very important just to, you can still do the uh, advanced recovery stuff if you think it worked, but if you're not getting eight to 10 hours of sleep, not eating the proper nutrition, then everything else is just, a, it's just not a waste of time, in my opinion. Yeah, you can't put the cart before the horse. Uh, the, the most potent Stimulus for recovery is sleep. Before, before we let you go, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoy uh, learning a lot about strength and conditioning. Do you have any social media accounts that you would like to uh, promote? Sure. Yeah. Um, I have Instagram. That's probably where I do most of my stuff. Uh, I'm not super active right now, but I'm on there. My handle is Hammer of Dolan, H-A-M-M-E-R-O-F-D-O-L-A-N, all one word. Uh, I also have Twitter, but I really don't use that at all. And uh, and one more question I have. Uh, do you have any advice for any aspiring athletes who want to improve their uh, their athletic ability and try to reach it to whether it's the uh, making the high school varsity team, the uh, becoming a college athlete, D1 or D2, <clears throat> or even make it to the pros? Yeah, something I like to say is get obsessed and stay obsessed. Um, if it's, if it's truly something you want to do, then you have to turn over every stone when you work at the highest level of sport, as I have, um, you know, some guys there are just, God gave them ability, the ability to be that good. That's not most people. Uh, so most of us, we're going to have to to work a little bit harder and we're going to have to dot all our I's and cross all our T's. So circle back about five minutes to that conversation we were having before. Uh, are you doing the basics? Are you fueling your body properly with nutrient-dense foods frequently throughout the day? Um, Are you drinking water? Are you hydrating? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you managing your stress levels? Do you scroll through your phone all day and jack up your nervous system? And, uh, or do you find a time to, to actually relax, recover and chill a little bit? Do you get good sleep? And then from there, do you spend enough time practicing your sport and also preparing your body to be able to get more out of those skill sessions? Really there's, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing fancy that I have for you. Whoever is willing to endure day after day after day of the basics, day after day after day of the boring stuff and get a little bit better each day and get compound results over time. 
you have to get obsessed, stay obsessed and, and enjoy the process as much as possible and be willing to consistently show up. What you just said there reminds me of a late Kobe Bryant. He always like was never bored with the basics. Like he just continued working on the fundamentals every single day. And that's how he got to becoming one of the greatest players in NBA history. I mean, my, when I was in the ABA, my, my guys practice layups. They practice free throws. They take a lot of three-pointers every day, consistently working on basics. But work down on the low block every day. Well, you know, Jeff, we, we really appreciate the time for you to come on and speak about your profession, speak about the various sports that you've worked in, the, the athletes that you've been able to educate, and then some really good advice for the listeners, you know, whether they're, they're athletes themselves or just everyday citizens, you know, I think they can all take some form of, of advice that you mentioned. Sam and I are very appreciative of you coming on it and providing kind of a little story of, of who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks guys for having me on. I, I had a lot of fun. Good conversation. Definitely. Jeff, uh, give up the good work. Uh, good luck this up, upcoming season. Hopefully uh, the players you train will have one of their best seasons ever. Yeah, we're going to make it happen. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.